rocks that are there, the cliff walls that are there are not really tall. They're probably maybe 50, 70 feet high. So they're not really, really overwhelmingly high. But a lot of people come there because there are a lot of overhangs. And for rock climbers, uh, overhangs are like the ultimate challenge. And they love to come and to climb and to move all over uh, those outcroppings and move all over those, those overhangs. One of the things that rock climbers use that they see as essential equipment uh, is a rope. And they will tie a rope to themselves as they climb the rock and they will have somebody hold the other end of that rope. And as they move up, they will move their rock to uh, move their rope to different places on the rock that'll that'll provide security for them. And the person that's on the ground, uh, he is called a belayer. Now the belayer, his job is to hold the rope. And as the climber climbs, uh, he doesn't have to worry about falling off of the rock because the belayer will catch him if he falls. He may fall just a few feet, but the belayer will stop that. Hopefully, if the belayer is doing his job right, he doesn't fall at all. He may slip and come off the rock face, but the belayer will hold him in place so that he can easily get back on the rock where he was at and continue the climb. And so that is the belayer's job, to keep the climber from falling. We have been making our way through the books of Thessalonians. We started in 1 Thessalonians and we made our way through 1 Thessalonians. And we're continuing our way through 2 Thessalonians. And we have been in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians for a time period. And here this morning we come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and we want to look at verses 13 through 17. This happens to be the last part of this letter, of, of chapter 2 of this letter. Now, as I'm thinking about Paul, and as I'm thinking about this letter, this second letter that Paul is writing, Paul is kind of in that position of belayer. Uh, there have been some false teaching that's come into Thessalonica, some false teaching that has discouraged the believers of Thessalonia, and he is seeking to keep them on the rock. He's seeking to keep them climbing as they continue to live the Christian life. The teaching that had come in had discouraged them. They believed and thought that they had missed out on the rapture. They believed that they were in the midst of the tribulation period. And as a result of that, they were very discouraged, very overwhelmed. And Paul, as the believer, is holding them in place, making sure they continue the climb. And here as we come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Verses 13, 13 through 17, Paul specifically reminds them of where they are in Christ and how they got to where they are in Christ. And so I've entitled this message this morning, Believers Stand Firm. As we look at these verses, there are two headings that we're going to use to kind of help us climb as we move through these verses. The first thing we see is believers call. And there's some great encouragement in the thought of being called as believers. And the second thing we see is the challenge. Believers are challenged in the second part of this passage to continue climbing, to continue looking for the blessed hope that's going to come. Now open your Bibles this morning, if you're not already there, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. I'll read it aloud and you can follow along with me in your copy of the scriptures. 
I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. It says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Great God in heaven, we're thankful that you are the great God in heaven, that there is no other. Lord, in our time together as we open your word, I pray that our hearts would be open to your word as well. I pray that our hearts would drink in what you have for us. I pray that you would open our minds and open our hearts, that we would hear from you. Lord, in order for us to hear from you, they have to be able to hear your word. So Lord, I pray that anything I share that might hinder that would not be heard. But I pray that it would be your word that would stick to our hearts this morning so that when we leave this morning, we'll be able to say that we've heard from you. And it's in your son's perfect name that we pray these things. Amen. The first thing we want to see this morning as we look at this passage is believers call. Look at verse 13 with me. Paul says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Now, as we think about this, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Uh, we have seen this thought before. Uh, this is the same thought that Paul shared uh, in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 3. He said this, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing. The idea or the thought that's behind this is that there is a debt that needs to be paid, that that debt ought to be paid. That's, his, that's what he's thinking here. That's what he's sharing is that this debt needs to be paid. And the way that this debt is to be paid is only and is possible only uh, through giving thanks to God. And it's because of their salvation that this thanks must be given. And as Paul looks at this group of Thessalonian believers, they are his children in the faith, so to speak. He's looking at them and he's seeing how God grabbed a hold of them, how God changed their lives. And he steps back and he says, we ought always to give thanks. There's a debt that's paid here. And because God has saved you, we ought always to give thanks. And when we think of you, that's what we ought to do is to give thanks thanks because of the salvation that they have received. And God is the one who is worthy of that praise. No one else deserves that praise. Paul and his missionary team, they don't deserve that praise. Only God deserves the praise for the salvation that the people of Thessalonica have received. And he says, when we think about it, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Now notice verse 13 as it continues. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, Beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Brothers, 
beloved by the Lord. Isn't that an amazing phrase when you think about that, being beloved by the Lord? To think that God would so love us that he would give his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God demonstrated his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that amazing that we would be that kind of loved by God? And as Paul is writing this to the people of Thessalonica, he says, you are beloved by the Lord. And notice he calls them brothers. They are of the same family as Paul because of the love of Christ. Thanks should be given to God because of them. Uh, and as we look at this passage here, he says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Thanks is to be given to God for them. As we look at this passage here, and as we see this, this is what is called the doctrine of election. And there are some who are really troubled by this doctrine. But as we think about the doctrine of election, instead of being troubled by it, I want to challenge you and double-dog dare you to be encouraged by it, to let this thought or this doctrine to be something that's uplifting. Think about where the people of Thessalonica are. They have heard tell that the wrath of God is being poured out on the world. They're, they're not on the world, but on them. They're, they're experiencing the, the persecution there of being followers of Christ. And as they think about this difficult time, they're thinking that they've missed out on the rapture. They're thinking that now they're facing the wrath of God. And it's a very troubling thing for them. And Paul wants to make sure they stay close to the rock. He wants to make sure that they keep climbing. And so he shares with them, we ought always give thanks for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. He chose you as the first fruits to be saved. If man is left to his own leading, if man is left to himself, man is not going to choose God. It's against our very nature. This is Romans 3, verse 11. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's our sin nature. That's how we are wired. Naturally, the things of God do not appeal to us because of our sin nature. And as a result of our sin nature, we sin. And that is contrary to God. And that's how we are wired. Our sin nature continues to take us away from God. But God's work of salvation, God's work of salvation begins with God. Moses spoke of this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. God chose Israel to be his chosen people. And Moses shared this in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. <clears throat> Moses reminded, reminded them that it's not you. It's not you. It was not because of your numbers. God <laughs> set his love upon you, and he chose you. There was nothing in Israel that caused God to say, oh, this would be a great group of people. He didn't look at Abraham and say, you know what? 
Abraham's descendants, you know, they're all going to be over six foot. This would be a good group. He didn't do that. God, through his wisdom, through his own plan, he chose Abram. And Abraham, Abram was even in the midst of a family that was worshiping false gods. It wasn't like Abram had met God part way. Abraham was in the midst of an idol-worshiping region amongst the family of idol worshipers. And yet God chose Abraham and called Abraham. And his descendants became known as God's people, the people of Israel. God chose Abram. There was nothing in these believers of Thessalonica that made God choose them. God didn't look at the people of Thessalonica and say, man, I love all of those S's in your name. I'm going to make pastors from now on pronounce Thessalonica just because it's easy for their speech impediment. He didn't do that. That's not why he chose them. But God chose them. Ephesians 1, verse 4 says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. This is God's guidance. This is God's uh, plan. This is God's desire. He chose them in eternity past before they even had a chance to prove themselves. There's nothing in us that makes God choose us. God didn't look at us and say, oh boy, he will be a good addition. Oh, she will be a good addition. He didn't do that. But it was according to his purpose, according to his will. He knew that on our own, we would not choose him. But he chose us. He didn't choose us because of any great works that we have done. This is 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. It says, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God chose us for his purpose. There is nothing in any of us that makes us worthy of God's choosing. And this passage continues here in verse 13. It says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. Sanctification describes the state of being set apart. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot sanctify ourselves. We cannot set ourselves apart in holiness uh, only the Holy Spirit can do that. This is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. It says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Our sanctification begins at the moment we are born again. It happens when we are regenerated. It happens when the renewal takes place when we are born again, when we are born of the Spirit. That's when the sanctification takes place. This is Titus 3.5. He saved us, not because of words done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is the one who sets us aside. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us. The Holy Spirit is the one who renews us. Now, this doesn't mean that we'll never sin again. But this means that we've been set on that road of sanctification. And, and though we're positionally sanctified and given a right standing before God, positionally, practically, we're still works in progress, aren't we? We're still learning to be obedient. We're still in that process of growing more and more Christ-like. Hopefully, as we move each day, we are more and more Christ-like. But we can't begin that climb. We can't begin that walk until the Holy Spirit sets us aside. That he sets us in that position of being sanctified unto, unto Christ. Notice the next part of that. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Belief in the truth. This is the human factor in salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith. This is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's by grace through faith. And even that faith has been given to us by God. We can't even come up with that faith on our own. God works in our hearts. God stirs in our hearts and gives us that faith. And then we place that faith in Christ. We can't do that on our own. It says, uh, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Every time I read this verse, I think about this. Every time I read this verse to you, I probably tell you about this. When you work for Schwann's after they decide that you're probably going to stick around for a week or two, they send you to training to Marshall, Minnesota. So they put us on a plane and they fly all of these Schwann's men from all over the country to Marshall, Minnesota. You, you fly to uh, Minneapolis and you land in Minneapolis and then they put you on a bus for three hours from the city of Minneapolis to Marshall, Minnesota. So we are getting ready to get on the bus and the bus doesn't show. And the bus broke down and they said, don't worry about it, the bus will be here soon. Three hours later, the bus shows up to take us on a three hour trip. So we're sitting around a bunch of Schwanzmen, okay? They're not dressed in yellow, but they were clearly Schwanzmen. So as they sit there and as they begin to chat, they begin to brag and boast about how good a Schwanzmen they were. Honestly, if we could go to heaven on our own accord by the works that we have done, I would not want to go. Because I spent three hours in an airport and then three hours on a bus listening to men tell me how good they were. <laughs> Can you imagine spending all of eternity like that? It would be painful, I'm telling you. Six hours of it was enough for me. And then we got to Marshall, Minnesota, and I found out that those guys weren't as good as they talked about me. <laughs> <coughs> It's a gift. We are saved through faith. Not of our own doing, but by the grace of God. 
The Holy Spirit gives us regeneration. And he gives re regeneration to those who believe. This is Romans 10, 9 and 10. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Now notice verse 14. To this, he called you through our gospel. This calling here is the effectual, irresistible call of God. And how does God do that? God uses the gospel of Jesus Christ. And notice Paul says, to this he called you through our gospel. The message that we proclaim to you about Jesus Christ coming into this world, living a perfect life, dying in your place for your sin. By faith, when you believe that, that's the gospel that saves you. And as you believed in that, as you recognized your need, you were saved as a result of what Christ has done and by your faith in what Christ has done. Tuesday morning, I woke up and my devotional lights up at 5.30 every morning. And this was the verse of the day, Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God for salvation. To everyone. What does everyone mean in the Greek? <laughs> everyone. <laughs> to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, when Paul is writing this to the people of Rome, there were only two kinds of people. You were either Jewish or you were Greekish. There was no, there was no third party. There were only two groups. You were either Jewish or you weren't Jewish. That was it. Jewish or Greek. That's all you were. And he says, this is good for everyone. It's good to everyone who identifies as Jewish. It's, every, it's good for everyone who identifies as Greekish. That's, that's the only two options. And it's good for everyone. And it's the power of God that saves. It's the power of God for salvation. And this is what Paul is telling them and saying, hey, stay close to the rock. You're not living in the midst of the wrath of God. Because you have been called for salvation, not your own doing, but you have been called by God for this gospel that I've shared for you has shown you that. That's the truth that you need to be looking to. That's the truth that keeps you against the wall. You don't need anything else. It's the gospel that saves us. And that's what he's proclaiming to them. It's through the gospel that mankind is saved. And this is the gospel that they have heard. Now notice verse 14 as it continues. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are worried that they're in the midst of God's judgment. And, God, and Paul says, you are not destined for God's judgment. That is not your destiny. Your destiny is the glory of Jesus Christ. Instead of being destined for death, you are destined for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will share in that triumph. We will share in the ultimate victory party. Because God has called us, not for the wrath 
but for this eternal glory. Over the centuries, God has been calling out a group. And this group is known as the church. God has been calling them out for the glory of God. For his glory, they've been called out. And you know what? We are going to share in the glory of Christ together. This is Romans 8, 29. And I don't know the word that I'm looking for. I've been thinking about it and trying to determine what this word is. But in Romans 8, 29 through 30, Paul shares with us the complete picture from eternity past to eternity future, the whole spectrum. I don't know if that's the right word, but he shares with us the whole spectrum of salvation. Okay? Romans 8, 29 says this. For those whom he foreknew, eternity past, he predestined to be conformed to the image of, of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is the whole spectrum of salvation. Predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And notice that glorified is past tense. So when we are predestined, when we are called, when we are justified, it's going to result in glorified. That's the spectrum. That's how it works. That's the way it unfolds. And that's what Paul is sharing with them. This is what Paul is telling them. He's saying that believers are called, stay close to the rock. Don't let yourself be discouraged and overwhelmed and risk falling. Because we don't have to worry about that. We've been called. We've been set aside. We're, we're looking forward to the finish line. We're looking forward to the victory party that's going to take place. And we're all going to be involved in that. That's what he's sharing here. Now, he says, we as believers have been called. This is where we are. But what do we do with that? I mean, how do we take that? What do we do? I mean, it wants to just make us go home and eat mozzarella sticks and, and celebrate. But there's more to it than mozzarella sticks and cheese herds. Notice what he says. So then. So then. He's just shared all of that. So then. Because of this. Paul has laid out salvation for us. He shared with us all of God's working behind the scenes, in front of the scenes, in our heart, drawing us to himself. Because you were called, stand firm. Because you were called, stand firm. These guys have been discouraged. They've been disillusioned. They've bought into the false teachings. He says, stand firm. Don't be discouraged. Persevere. Our salvation is sure. Continue to stand firm. Continue to stand firm. Keep your footing. Notice what he says in verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. He says, Traditions, hold to the traditions. This thought of traditions is something that's handed down. 
And as Paul came, he's not referring to the traditions of the family. Hey, you know what? We always decorate for Christmas after December 14th because December 14th is my sister's birthday. I thought everybody had to wait till after December 14th. I married my wife and here we are just getting through with Thanksgiving dinner. We're setting up the Christmas tree. Oh, wait, wait, wait. This is, can't do this. It's unchristmas like That's our tradition in our family. That's not the tradition he's talking about. The tradition he's talking about is the things that he spoke to them. The tradition he's speaking about, the things that he handed down to him in regards to Christ. Paul is speaking about that foundation of the faith. Paul is speaking about that foundation of the truth that he poured into them, that divine revelation that Paul handed down to them. He's saying, hold on to that. Don't believe all of this other stuff that's coming in. Hold on to the foundation. Hold on to the truth. Don't be discouraged. The New Living Translation says this, Stand firm and keep a strong grip on the teaching we passed on to you, both in person and by letter. And that's such a great picture, that tight grip. Keep a tight grip. This thing that I've handed down to you, keep a tight grip on those things. Don't let go of that. As we think about rock climbing, as we think about a buckle being screwed into the rock with a rope through it, and on the other end is somebody holding us in place. Hold on to the rope. Hold on to the rope. Don't let go of the rope. And that's what he's sharing here. The enemy wants us to be confused, doesn't he? The enemy wants us to let go of the rope. That's what the enemy wants us to do. But Paul says, hang on to that rope. Hang on to that rope. This is Ephesians 4, verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. <laughs> hang on to the rope. Don't buy into those deceitful schemes. And that's what it snuck into Thessalonica, were those deceitful schemes. He's saying, you know what? Stand firm. Don't be tossed to and fro. Stand on the truth. Stand on the foundation. That's what we need to do. And you know, as we sit here today, there are so many things that keep coming our way. Uh, you know, as we think about Facebook and Twitter and, and MySpace, uh, that's the one Howard uses. Uh, as, we, as we think about all of those different things, I mean, there's something new every day. Uh, and, and you know, there's always somebody saying, hey, Christ is going to return on March 17th, 2024. And you know, when I hear that, I know that that's the day it's not going to happen. Because Jesus told us that no one knows the day. No one knows the time. But you know what? We need to have our bags packed. We need to be ready so that if today the day the horn sounds, we're ready to go. We need to make sure we're ready of that and not, not toss to and fro. Now, it's amazing as we get to this, and as Paul is here, and I feel like this as well, Paul breaks into prayer. Paul breaks into prayer. And this is something that Paul often does in his letters. But notice what he says in verse 16. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Paul often breaks into these little words of benediction, and that's what he does here. 
But he's thinking about the believers of Thessalonica. And his desire is that they would be comforted, but that they would be strengthened as well. He knew the believers of Thessalonica could not stand firm on their own strength because they've just tried. And that's what got, that's what has them all uh, discombobulated here in chapter two is because they've tried to stand on their own. Other teachings were coming in and they became confused. He's saying, may the Lord himself strengthen you. May he comfort you. They needed the Lord's comfort. They needed the Lord's strength. And that's his desire for them is that they would do just that. Colossians 1.29 says this, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. That was Paul's desire, is that he, God would work within him. His desire for them is that God would work within them. You know, as we think about it, we cannot live the Christian life on our own. We need the Lord. We need his comfort. We need his strength as we live the Christian life. We need to be reminded of our security. We need to be reminded of our security. We need to be reminded that we need to persevere, that we need to be looking towards the finish line, looking forward to that blessed hope that's waiting for us. That's what helps us endure the things that we're going through now. Hey, one day, one day. I think I was about a sixth grader or a fifth grader. I was 16, 17 years old, so probably fifth grade. And I can remember hearing the graduation tune. And I can remember learning how to whistle a graduation tune. Now, I was off key as I'll get out, but it sounded amazing to me. And I would whistle the graduation tune. And I was looking towards that finish line, and I don't know how I'm going to get through fifth grade, but man, one of these days I'm going to graduate. I can't wait for that. But that's what I was looking forward to, was, was graduation. And I can remember sitting there at my graduation, and I'm thinking, you know what? I can't drop out. I've finished the race. I've completed it. I was so excited and couldn't wait to collect money from my dad because he didn't think I had a shot. But it was such a good thing, such a good feeling. And you know, that should be what we're looking at for eternity future as well. Hey, you know what? One day, one day, we're going to be gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ. We're going to be drinking in his glory, worshiping him face to face like we were intended to do. That is going to be a day. What a day that will be. I should write a song about that. <laughs> what a great day. But you know, we've got to stand firm. And we've got to be looking forward. This is Titus 2.13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting for, is that one. So there you have it. Believers, you've been called. And believers, you've been challenged. So what do we take home from this? What do we apply to our Sunday afternoon? I think there's a couple of things that we need to think about. As believers, we have the assurance that we've been called. 
As believers, we have the assurance that we've been called. I don't know about you, but there have been some times of difficulty in my life, and I've thought about this difficulty, and I'm just like, man, I don't know if it's worth it. But you know what? This is what I'm here to do. This is what I'm here to do. And so that's what I get up and do. Because that's what I'm supposed to do. As believers, we've been called. We're a part of God's family because we've been called. Not because we deserve it. Not because God is luckier because of us. Because he's called us. And that should be an encouragement to us just to get up every day. Just to keep working. Because he's called us. You know, sometimes people think about being called and they say, you know what? I don't know if we really need to proclaim the gospel to people. If God's called us, why do we proclaim the gospel? Paul was the one who proclaimed the gospel to the people of Thessalonica. He suffered shipwreck, he suffered beating, he suffered persecution, and yet he went there. And he proclaimed the gospel so that they could be saved, so that they could enjoy and, and, and be in or, and enjoy the, the glory that's set aside for them in the future. He wanted to share in that with them. And that needs to be our mindset. We need to be busy telling other people about the gospel so they too can have the blessed hope. As believers, we are secure. As believers, we are secure. And that is, a, that is an encouraging thing. Because you know, sometimes we, we live the Christian life and sometimes we fall on our faces. Now this doesn't mean that we can double or seven sin as we please because we have a license to sin. That's not what that means. But you know what? When we, when we trip and we fall down, isn't it a good thing to know that he doesn't leave us nor forsake us? I mean, there was more than a handful of times when I disappointed my parents. There were more than a handful of times that I didn't really want to walk through the door and tell them what just happened. But I did anyway. And you know, there were there was some consequences. But you know, they never stopped loving me. Unfortunately for them, I never stopped being their son. They're stuck with me. And you know what? God has chosen us. He's called us as his children. And we can be secure in that. We can be reassured of that. I don't know where you are in life right now, but maybe you've kind of drifted away. Maybe you're on a path that's in the opposite direction of God. And maybe right now God is speaking to your heart and he wants you to come back. He wants you to return to him. Do it. Because he's there with open arms, ready for you to repent, ready for you to come back. So don't let this moment slip away. Make sure you turn to him. You know, as believers, we've got to stand firm. We've got to continue to stand firm. All of the things that come this way, our way, are things that are going to try to discourage us from standing firm. But we've got to stand firm. Continue to stand. Continue to stand.